Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, this might be kind of a strange question, but if I forced you mm-hmm. to tell me the whole story of Cinderella on command, do you think you could tell me that folktale? All right. It's not one of my favorite uh, folk tales, but I believe it goes something like this. A uh, poor lady puts on a magic shoe and becomes a rich lady. Uh, the <laughs> end. You have you have missed some key elements, <laughs> but I bet you could do it. Come on. You you know the story of Cinderella. Yeah. Okay. So there are some magic mice in there that uh, that talk and have uh, in, engage in some, uh, some comic mischief with a cat. Uh, there's an evil stepmother. Uh, they're evil stepsisters. And I mm-hmm. believe in the more... Uh, you know, classic versions of the tale, the non-Disney versions, there's a little bit of, like, nasty uh, torture revenge at the end. Yeah, there's a lot of foot cutting and stuff like yeah. that in the uh, in the classic versions as told by, like, the Brothers Grimm and Charles Perrault. Uh, the, the, these old classic folk tales that were collected hundreds of years ago often had very strong, bloody, uh, sadistic elements to them. But they're also intensely memorable, yeah, but at the same time, it's, you know, you get down to its roots. I feel like it's a deeply unpleasant story. And then <laughs> even in the, the Disney version, like, no, but nobody turns into a dragon. There are no monsters. There's, you know, a little bit of magic, but it's, it, it, has, it has a lot to compete with, with uh, when it comes to other, like, major, uh, you know, uh, you know tentpole uh, fairy tales. Well, Robert, you are a spoil sport for my examples <laughs> today. Uh, you, come on. You, you know the story of Cinderella. You definitely know the story of Rapunzel. That's mm-hmm. got some good eye gouging and all kinds of oh, weirdness. Yeah. Uh, but what I bet you don't know is the story of the donkey cabbages, a.k.a. the donkey lettuce. This is true. I was not familiar with this tale prior to this recording. Also a story recounted by the Brothers Grimm. It's a mm-hmm. classic folktale that uh, that has been put into these collections of folktales. And I think maybe I'm going to do the horrible, horrible act of trying to tell it from memory. Okay. Stop me if this is getting unbearable. Okay, donkey cabbages. So you've got a young huntsman. He goes out one day into the forest, and he comes across an old crone in the forest. Okay. And the old crone is begging for alms, so he takes pity on her, and he gives her what he can afford. And she likes this. She's like, wow, you took pity on me, so I'm going to give you some advice. Up ahead in the forest, you're going to come across a tree that has nine birds in it, and those birds are going to be tearing at a cloak. Now, what you need to do is shoot those birds, and then one of them will fall dead, and you need to take its heart out and eat it. And when you eat the heart, every time every time you wake up after you eat that bird's heart, you will have a piece of gold under your pillow. And also – Hang on to that cloak because by putting it on, you can wish yourself into any place and magically appear there. <laughs> so the young huntsman walks a little bit further into the forest. Sure enough, he comes across the birds. He shoots into the flock of birds. One of them falls dead. He takes the cloak from the birds and he cuts the heart out of the dead bird and he eats it. So then he goes home. He goes to sleep. Next day, sure enough, there's gold under his pillow. And so he waits a while accumulating the wealth, right, the sleep Mm -hmm. wealth, until he's got a good collection of gold. And now he thinks, time to go explore the world, right? I'm I'm young. I've got a magic transportation cloak and I've got gold under my pillow every night. Okay. So he goes roaming all over the place and eventually ends up at a castle. 
at the castle, he sees another ugly old crone, but not the original crone. This is a different crone who is, in fact, a witch. And he sees a beautiful young woman. And so he asks to be led into the castle where there is a witch who knows about his magical items and wants to take them. And so the witch gets her beautiful young daughter to seduce the huntsman so that they can steal his magical items. And so first of all, the young daughter gets him to drink an, uh, a poisonous draft that the witch has created uh, that will uh, cause him to vomit up the bird heart that he ate. Okay. And so she gets him to drink that. He vomits up the bird heart. She takes it and she eats it. So now she can get the, now she can get the gold under the pillow. Second thing, the young, uh, the young beautiful daughter takes him up on the mountains one day uh, by saying, oh, I wish you could use that cloak of transportation to take me where we can gather some gems up in the mountains. So they, they travel there together with the use of the magic cloak. And then while he is drowsy on the mountain, she steals the cloak from him and leaves him there. He comes across some giants on the mountain and the giants, they discuss whether or not they should kill him. But eventually they decide, no, we'll just leave him here because eventually the clouds will carry him away. (laughs) So the young huntsman gets carried away by the clouds. He ends up getting deposited in a field of cabbages. He's hungry and so he eats some of the cabbage. This cabbage transforms him into a donkey. (laughs) He doesn't really like being transformed into a donkey, but he eats some other cabbage from a nearby field and transforms back into a human. He realizes that each of these fields grows cabbage. One type of cabbage transforms people into donkeys. The other type transforms donkeys into people. So he takes cabbages of both kinds and he goes back to the castle. He goes to the old witch and tricks her into eating some of the bad cabbage that turns you into a donkey. The old witch turns into a donkey. He also accidentally tricks the maidservant and the young daughter who uh, are at the castle also into eating the donkey cabbage and they turn into donkeys. Then he takes the donkeys to a miller and he tells the miller to – basically he tells them to mistreat the old donkey and to be nicer to the young donkeys. The miller comes back to him a little while after that and says, well, your old donkey died. And the other two, they're not going to hang on much longer. But then the huntsman, he relents from his revenge and he says, you know what? I'll transform those donkeys back into people. So he gives them the good cabbage. They transform back into humans. And then the, uh, the, the witch's daughter and he get married and they live happily ever after. Well, that is quite a story, Joe. Uh, <laughs> if it were – uh, I would say it, was, it would be pretty great if it were if this was a, a summary of kind of like a free wheeling, like randomly generated uh, uh-huh. like Dungeons and Dragons uh, in, uh, series of encounters. You know, because mm-hmm. it has that kind of vibe to it. Like there's just kind of a, a, a seeming randomness to it. Yeah, uh, the, the magic feels convoluted. Uh, the characters are confusing. the The moral message of the piece is uh, is, is equally lost on me. Yeah. Um, now, I, I certainly – Well, it's sort of a, a weird revenge story. Yeah, but it, 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 it really takes its time getting there. It's kind of yeah. – it does kind of feel like a winding goat uh, trail to nowhere. Uh, What's that called? The shaggy dog story? Yeah. But, but at the same time, it does remind me of some of um, – I mean, I've had this experience with other folk tales before mm-hmm. uh, where you start reading it and it seems to be kind of going in circles and it's making nonsensical choices – but then I often end up reminding myself, well, I'm not encountering this story in its original language. Mm-hmm. I am not a part of the the, the culture that that it was the intended, uh, uh, you know, listener to the to the tale. Right. Like I've had a similar situation watching some of the uh, the old uh, Russo Finnish. Uh, fairy tale epics. Oh, like Jack Frost, yeah. the one they did on Mystery Science Theater three thousand, which is 
just the best. Yeah. It's one of my favorite episodes. It, it's tremendous. And the movie itself oh, is – Grandfather trem- Mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's Father Mushroom. Uh, I mean, it, the movie is, is beautiful. I mean, if, if you – I challenge anyone who has only seen that MST3K episode to to look online and find a more pristine uh, copy of it mm-hmm. because the footage is just beautiful. It's a, This is a, a high-budget film of the time. Yeah. But the story, yeah, for, is for, for non-Russo-Finnish viewers, uh, I guess, uh, it – it is confusing, and you, have, you you kind of lose track of like what magical piece of magic is in play, and what's the what's the morality of the the character turning in like having his head turn into the head of a bear, and then he he loses the head of a bear just for promising to be good. Uh, to the outsider, that story just feels like the hell you go to if you get killed in the taiga by a gnome. Yeah. <laughs> but it reminds me a bit of Donkey Cabbages. Well, yeah. So well, I guess the, the big question that we're, we've we've led ourselves to at this point is uh, like what is what is ultimately the difference? What what makes one story Cinderella and one story uh, Donkey Cabbages? And why does Cinderella stick with us, whereas Donkey Cabbages is just it's just leaking through your, your fingers uh, almost immediately upon grasping it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing is that Cinderella is not just the the sort of European tradition grim fairy tale Cinderella. There are Cinderella type stories mm-hmm. all over the world. This is almost one of those those uh, Ur stories, you know, that seems to have an ancient prototype that filters into cultures all around the world, or maybe has parallel development because it's themed are so basic. Um, Cinderella is a widely known, widely distributed, ineradicable myth. Meanwhile, donkey cabbages is – it feels like donkey cabbages could disappear from the earth and we would all be poorer for having lost donkey cabbages because <laughs> I kind of love donkey cabbages. But nobody – not that many people would notice it was missing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it has not penetrated the culture in the same way that the Cinderella archetype narrative has. And so the question is, why are some narratives more successful than others? Like you're saying, what makes one story uh, the the narrative equivalent of a highly successful insect species and the other one an endangered species? Why is donkey cabbages endangered while Cinderella is thriving? It would be a shame if we lost donkey cabbages forever. But it seems like that's much more plausible of an outcome than losing Cinderella. Right. Okay. well, we'll come back to this question in just a minute. First, let's explore a related question and and see how these two subjects come together. This question is, why do religions emerge and what makes one religion more successful than another in the same way that one narrative can be more successful than another? Uh, You know, we've talked before on the show about all of the, the various psychological and biological explanations that people think may exist for the emergence of religions. I think I, I think it's safe to say this is not a subject where there is a settled known answer, but there are some answers that seem more plausible than others. Right. And I mean, you have some answers are certainly models for how it could occur. And I, I, I am often inclined to think, well, it's probably uh, multiple different models at once. Of course. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's hard to just say that the, like this is the equation for religion in human culture. Yeah. Uh, there's probably not one cause of the emergence of religion. But what are the dominant physical, biological, psychological factors that make a religion a thing that exists? Why did – how did we get this way? Now, some of you might be wondering, well, you were talking about fairy tales. Now you're talking about about religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what is the connection between Cinderella and the, the, the great religions of the modern world? Or of the ancient world. Uh, or of the ancient world. Uh, I mean, obviously, one of the big ones is that there is – any religion you look at, there is going to be some sort of narrative or narratives 
that uh, they're at the heart of it, sacred narratives upon which it is based. Yeah, there are almost no successful religions that don't have at least some strong narrative component in them. And uh, and so uh, obviously narrative might might be the common thread between the success of folklore and the success of a religion. Yeah, religions tend to have heroes. They tend to have villains. They mm-hmm. they they are they are stories uh, that have just taken on a grander um, cultural and personal meaning. So as far as the emergence of religion explanation goes, there, there are a lot of uh, ideas that have been put forward by scholars over the years. Uh, I know actually recently, Robert, you talked a little bit to uh, Barbara J. King about this at the World Science Festival, like w- what uh, psychological drives and biological drives play into the emergence of religion. And I know, I know part of her answer had to do with uh, with social cohesion and stuff, right? Yeah, um, and, and grieving and, yeah. uh, and bereavement and sort of the, the, the precursors to grieving and bereavement that uh, they can arguably be identified in, uh, in, in certain animals such as uh, some of our closer uh, primate uh, relatives. Exactly. Uh, another very common explanation from evolutionary psychology is the idea of the hyperactive agency detection. We've talked about this on the show before. But uh, the basic idea here is that there's going to be an evolutionary selection pressure in favor of people who are oversensitive about the possibility of detecting agents, meaning beings with intentions like animals or other people mm-hmm. uh, from ambiguous data. So the classic example is you imagine two different scenarios. One is you hear a twig breaking in the forest at night and you think it's a tiger or, you know, it's my nemesis Jeffrey and he's come for his revenge. And then you raise your guard and try to get yourself out of the situation safely. The other scenario is you hear a twig breaking in the forest at night and you think, ah, it's probably nothing. You just keep collecting firewood and then I don't know, maybe break some other horror movie sins. <laughs> you split up, you, you you drink some beer, you, you do all the bad stuff. Yeah, those are the very people who either are either eaten by tigers or killed by Jeffrey. Right. So the people in the latter scenario are probably going to be correct more often, right? More mm-hmm. often, it's probably nothing. But there's a relatively small benefit to being correct. The person in the first situation who's afraid, hyper-aware of what might be an animal or a person, some kind of intentional agent, they might waste some time and energy being overly cautious, but they're less likely to get killed in the off chance that they're correct about detecting an agent. And so because this person survives more often, the genes that put them on the hyperactive lookout for people or for animals, these intentional agents, those genes proliferate in the gene pool. And this causes us to read intentions into our environment at an unusual rate just to be safe. And this reading of intentions into all kinds of random phenomena lead us to the belief that there actually are minds controlling events that we don't understand, in essence, to the idea of gods. So that's one interesting possible explanation. Uh, There's also like the uh, meme obedience duality, which basically says there's a selection advantage for children with brains that tend to tell them to believe what adults tell them. You know, if you are warned that it's dangerous to leave the campfire at night, more children who believe that warning and accept it are going to survive to adulthood. And then piggybacking on this, you'd eventually have adults spreading religious memes by telling myths, stories, folktales, and the beneficial belief in obedience mechanism that causes children to survive after a, a warning not to leave the firelight also causes them to take these stories very seriously, to believe them, to pay heed to their values. But whatever the actual biological and psychological reasons for the emergence of religion, it leads to this question that we asked a minute ago of why some religions are more successful than others. I mean there are tons of religions throughout human history 
that have been invented and now they're extinct and very few people ever followed them. Right. Say, why did the, the ancient Egyptian uh, religion, why is it uh, why has it not survived in a, in a real tangible sense in yeah. the modern age? Why did it not even travel well beyond Egypt in its own day? But even it was relatively successful yeah. in its time. I mean, think about all the variations on it or all of the other types of mythologies that got started but never really went anywhere. Yeah, think of all the the cults that emerged that we know relatively little about. Uh, think of all the the heresies that were uh, that were squashed out before they could be really take on a name beyond heresy. Exactly. Because I mean, you think about how we refer to them. We don't even refer to them as religions. They were just upstarts that were 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 destroyed by the more popular and powerful models of belief. Exactly. So the question we want to look at today is, could the variable success of new religions have anything to do with the question we were asking a minute ago, why some folk tales and legends are more successful than others? Because, Robert, as you mentioned uh, a minute ago, what religions and, and folklore have in common is narrative. Almost all of the world's religions, past and present, have major narrative elements. They're based on stories. Um, so even though there are other components to religions, we know there's metaphysical incentives, a sense of meaning, social inclusion, and all that stuff. Since the narrative element is so common, wouldn't it be reasonable to guess that part of what makes a successful religion is containing successful stories? Right. The right kind of stories that you know, make me feel a little bit good and also make me feel a little bit bad in just the right ways. <laughs> right. A good religious narrative. It, it, it hurts so good. <laughs> uh, so this, this could be wrong. I mean, maybe narrative is not actually a major element, but I think it's a very reasonable starting assumption. And if this is the case, that the success of a narrative plays into the success of a religion, what makes a story that leads to a successful faith? Maybe we should take a quick break and then explore more when we come back. All right, we're back. So we've asked the question, what sort of narrative, what kind of story is going to make a religion successful or, or just make a story, a fairy tale successful in general? Like what, what are the elements uh, that are going to guarantee that it resonates and remains in human culture? Yeah, I guess maybe it makes sense to start with narratives and then see how this applies to religions. Yeah. Um, so it's time to explore basically I would say the key idea of this episode, the idea of what's come to be known as minimally counterintuitive elements of belief. Now, we can't know for sure what makes one religion or one story more successful than another and is probably due to multiple factors rather than just one. Mm -hmm. But this minimally counterintuitive elements paradigm I think is a really clever – answer, offering what I'd guess is an important part of the picture of the comparative success of stories, narratives, and belief structures. There have been a ton of papers investigating this over the years, a lot of studies, uh, but I thought we should examine the issue through one, one important study from the year 2006. And that's a paper published in Cognitive Science uh, by uh, Ara Noren-Zion, Scott Atran, Jason Faulkner, and Mark Schaller called Memory and Mystery, the Cultural Selection of Minimally Counterintuitive Narratives. So I want to read a quote from their introduction that starts to set the scene for why memory would be a relevant issue here. The authors write, quote, of the many ecological and psychological factors that influence the extent to which any such narrative achieves cultural success, mnemonic resilience may be one of the most important. Memorability, 
places necessary constraints on the cultural transmission of narratives and ideas. In oral traditions that characterize most of human cultures throughout history, a narrative cannot be transmitted and achieve cultural success unless it stands the test of memory. So in other words, in the the telephone game of belief, you've got to have a, a core story that is going to remain more or less intact with each retelling and each embellishment. Yeah, and I mean, part of the problem is that most of human history, most people have not had access to any recording method for narratives. Mm -hmm. Most people throughout the history of the world have been illiterate and have transmitted stories orally by hearing them told and then retelling them to others. So if a story cannot be accurately remembered, that story doesn't really have much of a chance of survival, right? Right. I mean, I'm reminded, I want to, in one of our recent episodes that dealt with writing, uh, I, I want to say there was one description that uh, discussed writing as an ability to like freeze thought yeah. or to, um, in some way, yeah, to, 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 to freeze thought in time. Yeah. And that's exactly what it's doing when otherwise, yeah, these stories would be uh, perpetually changing. Yeah. And of course, I think there there is plenty of evidence that stories do change through transmission in uh, in oral cultures, right? I mean, this happens all the time. Every yeah. time you tell the story, you make little changes to it, and over time, those changes accumulate. But how does a story become resilient? How do its key elements become set well enough that it can survive the sort of changing landscape of uh, of forcing of, – of being stored in human minds alone and being transmitted through human retelling alone. Well, there's the old quote, right? It, it don't mean a thing if it, if it ain't got that swing, right? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you know, there's got to be this – that uh, there's got to be that element that just really stands out, right? Okay. That makes it stick. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that probably seems like a, a no-brainer uh, on the surface, right? Memorable stories are going to resonate and survive. I can't help but think of the modern elevator pitch idea and all of this. You know, like you you're in the elevator. You got you got two sentences. Sell me on your script. You and, gotta you gotta phrase it in a memorable way. Yeah. So what do you say? You say jaws with paws, and they're like, "That's brilliant." What does that mean? <laughs> it's like Cujo, I guess. You know. But <laughs> oh, okay. It, but see, <laughs> you took this thing that I was familiar with. It's just become mundane in my my world of cinema. But you put a twist on it. You put this there's there's this new idea, and that's what's standing out in my mind. Plus, it rhymes. Well, I would certainly not discount the power of rhyming. Rhyming poetry might be selected not just because it sounds good, but because it's a memory-aiding device. Right, and this can certainly be a, a, a factor. You know, we're talking about sometimes the fairy tale loses something in translation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just loses the, the, the rhyme. Like these are the connections between words that make a fanciful story makes sense. But anyway, the, the broader point here is that the contents of our narratives, our folk tales, and our religions are influenced by the underlying capabilities and biases of our brains. So just one crazy example of this. All other things being equal, you probably would not expect a religion that offered a reward in the afterlife for good behavior of being thrown into an ocean of spiders. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. People have enough of a natural dislike of spiders that this type of religion would not be successful. The human brain is not fertile soil in which to grow that myth, right? It just naturally grows some types of content better than others based on natural predispositions, capabilities, and biases of the brain. Right. So the authors are pushing a hypothesis in this paper about uh, one possible relationship between memory, cognition, and the success of narratives like religious myths. They write, quote, 
we hypothesize that narratives combining mostly intuitive concepts with a minority of counterintuitive ones enjoy a memory advantage and as a result achieve cultural success. Such a MCI template, and MCI stands for minimally counterintuitive, a little bit counterintuitive, not mm-hmm. totally counterintuitive. Such an MCI template may be no accident. Indeed, we propose that it may be a recipe for cultural success. Compared to narratives that fit other templates, for example, no counterintuitive concepts at all or many counterintuitive concepts, those that are minimally counterintuitive may be especially memorable and therefore more likely to achieve cultural stability. All right, so it's not a situation where it's like going to the movie, right? The movie is not just an an accurate depiction of real life. That would be so boring. Right, but it's also not just so bonkers that it's just complete surrealism. Right. Which granted can be great, but 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 it's that middle ground. That's where you're going to find the the really successful films, right? It's where every most everything is pretty mundane, but there's there's some element that's out of out of whack. There's a mysterious stranger that's not what they seem. You know, I often think about how th- there are there are versions of this that work at various levels of narrative that contribute to their as- how aesthetically pleasing they are. One thing I think about is the the realism of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Characters sometimes people say I love the way that characters in this movie talk how people really talk. Mm-hmm. The characters in that movie did not talk how people <laughs> really talk. If they actually talked how people really talked, you would be so bored. Yeah. You would think the movie was terrible. People do not talk in deliverable dialogue that drives a plot. What you probably mean is they talked in an unnatural way that was just barely unnatural enough to be interesting, but not so unnatural that it felt false the way bad dialogue in a movie often does. And, of course, it's easy to, to just to... – to go to examples that have like a speculative element that's thrown in. Like mm-hmm. everything's normal except one character's magic. But, right. it, but it can also work in, in other ways too, right? Where there's an inversion of, uh, of character like the, uh, uh, you know, the village priest is actually evil as opposed to, uh-huh. you know, good, and, you know, whatever the expectation might be. Like the, the character that is, that is expected to behave in one way uh, morally behaves another way. Yeah. Get, uh, aesthetically pleasing narratives are surprising enough, but they can't be too surprising. Otherwise, you just stop being able to appreciate them as narratives. Right. You want to keep it's, – it's, it's like the, they say, you want to keep one foot on the ground, right? Right. You don't want to keep both feet on the ground. And likewise, you don't want both – just floating free. <laughs> so, but in this, uh, we, we've been using the idea loosely here for a moment. What in the, the literature itself makes a concept intuitive or counterintuitive? And so the authors write, quote, as several psychologists and anthropologists have noted, the key is whether the concept is consistent with or violates ontological assumptions about the properties of ordinary objects. So they're going with this idea of ontologies and all that means is how things normally work. Right. Um, One trope I'm instantly reminded of is just the the with a heart of gold trope, you know, because there's – she's a prostitute with a heart of gold. He's a prostitute with a heart of gold. They're assassins with hearts of gold. Um, (laughs) Uh You know, that's the – you see that spin time and time again. Right. Um, or one of my favorite recent ones, even though I never actually watched the show, I just really love the trailers. Uh, he's not just a pope. He's a young pope. <laughs> Popes aren't supposed to be young. I know. And I want to find out just how young is this pope. Um, <laughs> he's a baby. <laughs> baby pope. 
I'd watch Baby Pope actually. That's yeah. not a bad idea for well, they a show. Had, they had Boss Baby. Um, what have, is Boss Baby? I don't. I don't know. I just know it exists. Um, <laughs> you have that movie where the horse played uh, professional football. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh yeah, it was due to like a uh, was it like Air Bud? It was yeah, basically the Air Bud trope. Okay, yeah. But this was a horse that was uh, due to some sort of loophole in the rules was able to play professional football, or maybe it was college football. So, I don't th- know. so this is not exactly what the authors no, are no, no, talking no. about, but uh, it's pretty close. So uh, there are basically a few different types of intuitive ontologies that govern our basic understanding of the world at several levels. And the authors list, for example, our intuitive theory of physics. This is the ontology of our basic understanding of how objects and energy work. Uh, This is the intuitive theory you use to conclude that a brick will sink in water and not float, or to conclude that a falling snowflake won't land with enough force to pierce a hole in your skull. Right. Then you've got the intuitive theory of biology, and this is our basic understanding of life forms. This one will intuitively tell you that trees do not speak French, and sharks can't walk up onto the beach and bite you off your towel, and snails don't live to be 37 million years old. And then you've got your theory of mind, and this ontology tells you that For example, other people can have both true and false beliefs, and they can't read your mind, but they can see where you're looking with your eyes, and they can imagine what you're thinking based on external clues. And if you break any of these theories, you you instantly find yourself dealing with narrative elements, right? Oh, yeah. You break physics, theory of physics, well, then you have superpowers, you have miracles. You, uh, you, you break the theory of biology and you get magical creatures and immortal bodies and uh, you break theory of mind and you get things like psychics. Yeah, it's almost – it's kind of telling, isn't it, that anytime you come up with an idea breaking one of these intuitive ontologies, you instantly have what sounds like a concept for a story. Mm-hmm. Isn't that odd? Yeah. Now, the authors write that there are some minor cultural differences in how these ontologies work, like different cultures sometimes have slightly different beliefs about theory of mind or biology – But then again, some bottom-level elements of these theories appear so early in development and are found in so many different cultures that it looks like they might be more sort of hard-coded instincts from primitive parts of the brain, more so than culturally conditioned belief. And the examples that the authors give are studies that have found evidence that babies as young as four months old already show expectations based on some core aspects of our theory of physics – for example, they've got the idea of a solid object and they, they clearly do not expect one solid object to be able to pass through another solid object. And they also do not expect that a solid object can be in more than one place at a time. Yeah, I mean, children have an innate number sense. Uh, each one is a, a natural Euclidean uh, born to navigate a three-dimensional world of fixed and movable objects. Yeah. In other words, we start utilizing geometry before we can even name things. We don't understand wall or cat, but we already can think in geometric terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, yeah, kids will use geometric clues to navigate through rooms. Uh, and, uh, and given all the means of navigating their environment, they're most likely to use lengths of walls in a room to remember where a toy is hidden rather than color or decoration. Hmm. We're also born with an innate understanding of basic physical laws. Uh, only adults believe in magic, while <laughs> a toddler will see right through all of the, the supernatural. There was actually an MIT study that even found out that young children understand that teleportation is not feasible. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes you wonder how much of our understanding about the world, like our coded our coded knowledge about how things work is actually instinctual. Like a kid would know it without ever having to observe anything. Yeah. Like just sort of the basics of gravity, you know, I mean, that is the environment that we have evolved to thrive in. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting study when 
for the first time when children are brought up in space in uh, microgravity environments, though actually that might be a really bad idea because that could disrupt development and everything like that. But mm -hmm. just assuming it were to happen somehow, you'd wonder would those kids have an intuitive understanding of how gravity worked back on Earth? Would it be that built in? Right. Also, uh, the authors of this paper write that uh, preschool-aged kids in most cultures already have a common set of biological intuitions. For example, they know that making superficial alterations to an animal doesn't alter what kind of species it is. So they know that you can't just like put a, put a carrot on a horse's head and make it a unicorn. It's still a horse. Also, children from preschool age typically have a basic theory of mind. The classic example is understanding that other people can have false beliefs. Kind of a profound thing to realize. Yeah. Do you remember realizing that, Robert? I mean, it might have come from having younger siblings, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like the, that, that might be the, the, the area where those, those kind of ideas are initially introduced, you know? Hmm. Where you're, you're told, well, your younger sibling does not know not to touch this hot surface, you mm -hmm. know, and, and therefore there might be some uh, false belief baked into their understanding of their immediate surroundings. Oh, yeah, I wonder. Well, anyway, so the authors observe that despite how universal or near universal these beliefs are, our folk tales and religious mythologies are full of stories and images that violate these ontologies. We were just talking about this. Anytime you, you just say something that violates the ontology, immediately it sounds like a story, not right. just like a concept, but you want to tell a story about it. Frogs that can talk, people that can pass through walls like ghosts, or people who can read minds or otherwise have knowledge that they couldn't access. Uh, nasty old rich men who are capable of change come Christmas. <laughs> I, I kept thinking of that one in the research, uh, you know, uh, Christmas Carol and Scrooge. Oh, I'm kind of a Christmas Carol lover, actually. Oh, I i mean, you can't help but love it. But uh, I, I did kept, keep thinking of it. You know, it's like ultimately is is it just this story uh, where the, the the one area of inversion, the one area uh, that is um, that's counterintuitive is mm -hmm. that Scrooge was capable of turning his life around and changing. Whereas I, in many cases, reality would seem to indicate that it's the opposite with old, nasty, rich people. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. I'll probably come back to, th to that idea again. Well, uh, let, let's get there. I mean, so the question is, why do so many popular narratives like mythology, folk tales, and so forth, why do they always violate our ontologies? Why is that just intuitive to us at this point that, oh, if you say a frog that can talk, that's a story? And why do almost all of our most popular stories do stuff like that? The idea of realistic narratives is actually kind of an unusual thing in, in the history of successful folktales and narratives. Yeah, I mean, I remember in, uh, in creative writing classes where, they, you know, they would drive home, well, just because it really happened doesn't mean it's interesting. Right, know? yeah. Uh, which which is, is true. But I think one of the most obvious answers would be novelty, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we... We, uh, we, we create the idea of the black swan even before we know what it act, that it actually exists. Mm -hmm. um, and in mentioning that, I'm, I'm touching on uh, Nassim Nicholas uh, Taleb's uh, black swan theory, uh, the, the idea that major black swan events are the norm uh, and, uh, and, and also the, the problem of induction, induction here. Uh, so I, I wonder if we're drawn to these novel ideas because human existence kind of demands that we both move forward with expectations based on the known world, but with an openness to the possible inversions that shake everything up. So, you know, it, it basically comes back to the the tiger uh, in, in the grass, in the high grass, and mm -hmm. and, and how we're going to judge the, the, the sound of a snapping twig. 
oh, I didn't expect us to come back and make a connection between minimally counterintuitive ideas and uh, <laughs> and the uh, hyperactive agency detection. But I can see a through line there. And I also can't, uh, you know, I can't help but but think about the the idea that inversions end up uh, highlighting the reality, mm-hmm. right? So by having a story in which Scrooge is able to turn his life around, it just kind of also drives home that most people don't, you know? <laughs> By having somebody that acts heroically, like truly heroically, it's kind of a reminder that, well, most people are not heroes and would not do this. It's not how you see how things could be otherwise that you recognize how things are. Yeah. But you have another possible answer here. Oh, well, yeah. So the authors uh, here are drawing on a bunch of research over the years that's indicated a couple of things. Uh, First of all, there is the indications that sometimes it appears that people are better able to remember counterintuitive ideas than intuitive ideas. So you tell somebody a frog that talks, they'll remember that item better than you saying a frog that jumps. Right. A frog that jumps is not memorable. Right. Uh, But then again, in recent years before this study, other research has made it clear that there's some pressure coming from the other side, that while some counterintuitive content makes ideas and narratives more transmissible and easier to remember, there's also a limit to this benefit. Uh, So some examples of this balance, like ghosts and spirits are one of the most popular narrative subjects in history, uh, but they've basically got the properties of a person except somewhat counterintuitive. Like ghosts have the powers that humans do not have, like moving through walls, but otherwise they behave as, quote, ordinary intentional agents. Well, with ghosts, you guys, you could make the argument that uh, any of like the ghostly details, like that's all just fluff. Yeah. Uh, the basic mechanics are just it is a person without physical substance. Yeah, exactly. Another example, the author's cite of how people tend to limit the counterintuitive features of, of things they believe in is that research by Barrett and Kyle in 1996 found, quote, people spontaneously anthropomorphize God in their reasoning, even if doing so contradicts their stated theological beliefs. So while they don't, you know, they don't think that God is like a normal person, when they don't remember to limit themselves from doing so, they tend to think of God as a normal person, but just with great supernatural powers. And these types of limits on the wildness of supernatural elements also seem to be present in existing cultural narratives. Just one example, uh, an existing study of Ovid's Metamorphosis from Kelly and Kyle in 1985 found that even though there were a lot of magic transformations of people and things, it was much more common to transform a person into, say, an animal than it was to transform them into an inanimate object that was sort of less of a violation of their ontology. Well, this reminds me of the children's book, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble, uh, which I may have mentioned on the show before. Um, it's a, an award-winning children's book about a donkey who, who obtains a magic pebble. Mm-hmm. And the magic pebble allows you to uh, – it grants your wishes, essentially. And uh, the donkey ends up being turned into a stone. And then the pebble falls and rolls away from him, and he's stuck as the stone. Oh, no. Yeah. It's, and it's – it's kind of a traumatic story to read. Yeah. It's really good. But I, I remember reading it to my son uh, when he was he was really young. And it, I feel like it was difficult to get across this idea that a donkey turned into rock. Yeah. Not, a, not a rock that looks like a donkey, but just a rock that looks like a rock. Right. Whereas stories of people turning into animals, 
donkey cabbages. Yeah, but yeah, the, the, those make I feel like those were were more easily uh, transferred to him. You know, like he was able to, to buy into those stories a lot easier. Where this idea of the pebble turning the the donkey into just a rock, uh, and then somehow the rock was still conscious of everything. It was it was kind of a, a confusing magic to try and relate to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm there with you. Like turning into a donkey, that makes sense. Yeah. Turning into a rock, I, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so uh, the authors write how Barrett and Nyhoff in 2001 tested how well people could remember and retell stories. And these stories were broken down by how much they contained objects or ideas in three different categories. So you've got intuitive, normal stuff, intuitive but bizarre. This is weird stuff that doesn't violate ontologies. And then counterintuitive, stuff mm-hmm. that does violate ontologies. And they found that after retelling the story through three generations of transmission, People remembered and passed on counterintuitive ideas better than simple intuitive ones. And after three months, participants could still recall minimally counterintuitive elements better than other elements. And this delay is an important part because how do stories get passed on in the wild, right? When you retell a story to somebody, you don't usually tell it right after you heard it. Right. You've had some time to ruminate on it and embellish it, both intentionally, uh, but also just through the um, uh, the flaws of our memory systems. Yeah, memory mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've talked recently in, uh, for example, the Illusory Truth episodes about the ways that we edit our memories just by remembering them. Right. And these are memories of things that actually happened as yeah. opposed to stories. I'm reminded of Carl Sagan uh, writing uh, about how, how quickly – a, a, a an historical account became a, a, a tale of ancient high magic, like while the the actual historic individuals were still alive. Oh yeah, yeah, that came up What's in the story. Uh, I don't remember. It was uh, I think it was a European uh, uh, account. Mm. Uh, I don't remember. It, we we went into this in uh, I think our ancient aliens episodes. Oh okay. Uh, but he was talking about just how unreliable uh, many of these folk tales or. Uh, fairy tales and legends could be in trying Mm -hmm. to find some nugget of the fantastic because they could very well just be completely embellished from a very mundane incident uh, just in the course of a a decade or or thereabouts. Right. So given what seemed to be the case from the existing literature where people are more likely to remember things that are somewhat counterintuitive than they are to remember just totally mundane intuitive things and at the same time are – seem less likely to retell stories that are just full of counterintuitive stuff, you know, crammed to the gills with it. Mm -hmm. Is it the case that there's a cognitive selection pressure in favor of MCI or minimally counterintuitive elements in stories? Are we more likely to remember and transmit ideas that violate our ontologies a little bit but don't violate them too much? Is there a sweet spot for the kind of narrative that makes it through our brains to the next generation of retelling and gets retold? Now, one thing that the authors wonder about and you've got to wonder about is if the hypothesis is correct that people are more likely to remember minimally counterintuitive things, why don't minimally counterintuitive elements just dominate successful cultural narratives even more than they do? Like uh, many popular myths, legends, and folktales contain these elements, but they're outnumbered by mundane intuitive concepts. I mean, think about, uh, for example, stories in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Stories in the Bible are actually mostly mundane if you read them. They're, they're, you know, long mundane narratives 
with occasional punctuations of counterintuitive elements and magic and stuff like that. Uh, now, of course, there are a few books and passages in the Bible, such as you know, Revelations, Apocalypses, various prophetic visions that are sort of crammed with bizarre and counterintuitive imagery and stuff. But most of the time, the the basic stories are mostly mundane. Yeah, though, though uh, even with something like the Book of Revelation, we we do have to stop and you know pause and wonder like just how. Uh, counterintuitive uh, is it really? Well, certainly, at least on face value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on face value for the the average modern day individual picking up Book of Revelation, yeah, it just seems like crazy town, right? Mm-hmm. But we do have to remember the Book of Revelation is a symbolic work from the first century CE, and it's a work of apocalyptic literature. So uh, it would have followed particular conventions of this style, conventions that would have uh, been better known and understood by the intended reader. And the intended reader in this situation would have been very much an insider as opposed to just your average Joe Christian. Right. And we've touched on this uh, this same situation with the highly symbolic work of uh, Hieronymus Bosch before, you know. Oh, yeah. You, if you look at it and you think, well, this is just bizarre. This is crazy. Clearly, this artist was just on drugs. But the closer you look, you realize, well, okay, maybe some of that is true. But... Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, you do have a lot of, of symbols that are speaking to a different viewer and, and you are not the intended audience. Totally. So even in some of these cases, it might be that if you could, if you could sort of decode the meaning mm-hmm. of, uh, of all of these revelations, that it might actually sort of key out to a more mundane kind of message that has some minimally counterintuitive suggestions in it. Right. Even though the face value imagery is pretty off the wall. But, of course, another example would be standard folktales like the stories of the Brothers Grimm. A Little Red Riding Hood is actually a mostly mundane narrative. There are only two really counterintuitive elements. You've got a talking wolf and then you've got a person who can survive being eaten alive by a wolf and come out of the stomach alive. Those are the two magic parts. The rest of it is a normal story with intuitive elements. And so the authors of the study think that maybe we should think of each narrative as something like a single unit of transmission rather than looking at individual elements within the story to see how many counter counterintuitive ideas the story elements contain. You think about how many does the story as a whole contain because you don't usually tell part of a story. Maybe the point of a story is to get transmitted as a whole. And so the optimal level of counterintuitiveness might function at the level of the whole narrative rather than individual ideas within it. So it's possible that the narrative itself as a whole might need to be minimally counterintuitive, not just stuff within it being minimally counterintuitive. It needs to violate our ontologies a little bit, but it can't contain too many of these things, or maybe then it becomes the donkey cabbages. <laughs> and, you know, once you start piling up all the donkey cabbages stuff, I mean, who gives a dang? Like, it it just, it sort of makes you stop caring, right? Right. They just become too many fantastic elements and there's nothing I can relate to. Right. Uh, so how do you test to see whether this is true? Well, the authors put together a couple of studies. Uh, the first study was to look at lists of minimally counterintuitive ideas compared with intuitive ideas and to see how those lists fared in recall. And then the second one, the second study was to look at existing folk tales and to see how well comparatively minimally counterintuitive folk tales did. So the researchers put together lists of two-word ideas, some of which were intuitive, some of which were minimally counterintuitive. Uh, Here's an example. Closing door. How do you like that? That's pretty normal, right? Yeah. Uh, Thirsty cat. Four-legged table. 
confused student. These are all, you know, this is the right world, right? Right. Everything's okay. How about thirsty door? Oh, now it's getting a little poetic. Confused table. Mm. Mischievous coat. Mm. Impatient fist. (laughs) Contrived dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, these are minimally counterintuitive for sure. And so the researchers tested how well a group of 94 students could remember stories like this uh, in immediate recall, three minutes after studying a list, and then also in um, and then also in a later test after a week. And the results were that in immediate recall, three minutes after studying, the lists of entirely intuitive items were actually remembered best, which is kind of strange. Like the ones that were just all normal concepts were remembered the best of all. But delayed recall was a different story. After a week, there was massive overall degradation of memory, but the lists that people could recall the best were the ones that had a minimal number of minimally counterintuitive elements in them. So after a week, if the list was all intuitive ideas, people remembered it less. If the list contained equal numbers of intuitive and counterintuitive ideas or contained all counterintuitive ideas, people remembered it less. What people remembered best after one week were lists that had a minority of weird monster concepts in them but were otherwise unremarkable. And note that this is for lists, not individual concepts. And this seems to partially uh, back up the idea that this works at the function of a, of a narrative as a whole instead of just individual ideas that you would remember as a single concept or object or word phrase. And then in the second study, they tested a survey of folktales uh, from the collections of the Brothers Grimm, and they, they counted numbers of counterintuitive elements that they contained and compared that to how successful and well-known these folktales were. So like if you count all the stuff in the donkey cabbages, you'll get a pretty big number. Yeah. Versus if you count all the stuff in Cinderella, you'll get a smaller number. And so they made a chart basically of all these stories and compared how successful the story was as measured by how familiar test subjects were with them and how many internet hits they got about these stories versus how many counterintuitive elements were in the stories. And they got the same kind of result. They found that for the less memorable folktales as measured by familiarity and the internet results, there was a pretty flat distribution. Uh, There were MCI tales, tales that were highly intuitive, tales that were as bonkers as the donkey cabbages or worse. But for the more memorable tales, the really successful ones, there was a clustering around a small number of counterintuitive elements. And that means that the MCI narrative template seems somewhat validated. Those that had penetrated the culture more deeply on average were the ones that had a small number of counterintuitive elements. And in their discussion, the authors proposed that MCI narratives are more successful partially because they're easier to remember as a whole. And they write, quote, These deviations involve evocative, minimal counterintuitions that are, quote, relevant mysteries. They are closely connected to background knowledge but do not admit to a final interpretation. As a result, they are attention-arresting and inferentially rich and therefore encourage further cognitive processing and multiple interpretations over time that facilitate the cognitive stabilization of narratives. And I thought that was interesting because it made me think of a discussion we were having in the episode about finite and infinite games and the uh, the religious scholarly work by James P. Carse about the idea of, of mythology and um, w- whether a mythology can survive if it is made finite or if a mythology is uh, is only kept alive by sort of like the, the 
unending tendency to change it and and keep working on it to keep asking questions. Mm. Yeah, I mean that ultimately I think that is how that is how the stories stay relevant. Yeah. Without having to just like bend and break your interpretation of them. I mean, it I think they may be onto something here with the idea that stories are can only be properly mysterious and arresting to us and keep prodding our brains if they have the right balance of mundane content and confusing content. Right. Right. I mean, like if if something is just totally unfamiliar and, and unrelatable, then you you don't even have a context in which to frame questions or which in questions can feel like they mean something. But if a story is totally mundane, you don't end up asking questions. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right. We're back. So if the authors of the study we just looked at are correct that minimally counterintuitive narratives, narratives that have some weird counterintuitive content but not too much, if those types of narratives are key to the success of folk tales and mythology that spread throughout oral cultures that have to be remembered and transmitted, is it also true that modern literate societies or even ancient literate societies, societies in which stories can be written down before they're transmitted, that those societies make room for more highly counterintuitive narratives or for more mundane, totally intuitive narratives. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Like if, if that's the sweet spot for oral culture transmission, does writing change what type of mythology becomes salient? Well, we come back to this idea that writing freezes thought, right? Yeah. And nothing freezes thought. And this goes back to some of the the ideas of James P. Carson as well. Mm-hmm. Nothing is going to freeze thought like sacred literature. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I actually found a, a wonderful paper uh, on some of this. Uh, it is uh, titled uh, An Alternative Account of the Minimal Counterintuitive Effect. And it was by, uh, by cognitive scientist uh, Muhammad Afzal Upal. And this was published in 2010 in Cognitive Systems Research. Mm-hmm. And he argues that, that essentially we have uh, – we, 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 you can look at uh, MCI in two different ways. You have concept-based MCI, and mm-hmm. that's where just the concept itself is resonating, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's a donkey that talks, et cetera, right? right? Uh, but then you can also look at it uh, as context-based, and he makes the case that counterintuitive concepts lose their advantages as they become widely accepted and part of the culture. Oh, interesting. So if I introduce to you a new counterintuitive concept, you might be more likely to remember that than if I just say like a ghost, which is a counterintuitive concept, but you're familiar with it. Right. Or a vampire, you know. Yeah. It's like, I know vam- I'm bored with vampires. Give me something with a little more jazz to it, right? But if I say a turtle that drinks human blood, people are probably going to remember that. Yeah. Therefore, he, he argues that ideas with enhanced counterintuitiveness obtain transmission advantages. And this results in a ratcheting up of counterintuitiveness that may help explain cultural innovation and dynamism. Interesting. So this would be bigger than just religions. This would be for ideas in general and narratives in general. Right. Though he is particularly interested in, in religion. Uh, that's like one of his uh, – that's one of, uh, of Upal's uh, areas of expertise is mm-hmm. cognitive science of religion. And he, uh, he says that, quote, it also allows us to account for the development and spread of complex cultural ideas such as the overly counterintuitive religious concepts, including the Judeo-Christian Islamic conceptions of God. Does that mean like overly counterintuitive because not anthropomorphic enough? 
Um, yeah, and just the, I mean, I, th- I think part of it also comes back to examples like Revelation. You know, mm. you have it's just to to a modern reader, it's just completely counterintuitive. What does it mean? Why is it there? What is it supposed to be saying to me? Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that it's sacred, right? It's 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 frozen in time. It's no longer speaking to the people. Uh, the specific individuals who would have un- who would have understood it mm-hmm. without a bunch of uh, you know theological dissection. Interesting. Uh, so Upal writes the context based view posits that religious concepts such as gods, ghosts, angels, and devil have become maximally counterintuitive in the Barrett and Boyer sense because they have had to survive in the minds of an adaptive and innovative population of human beings over a long period of time. In light of the model we develop here, one should not be surprised to see maximally counterintuitive concepts to form a significant part of religious beliefs. Indeed, it would be surprising if they did not. Maximally counterintuitive. So stuff that... um because it's hard to get your counterintuitive juices flowing anymore because you've been so exposed to ideas like spirits and ghosts that they want to offer you uh, visions that, uh, that that tell you, like, you're not going to get a weirder idea than this. Yeah. I mean, you get into areas uh, – and this, this is me commenting on his material. He didn't make the specific point. But, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like the transfiguration of Christ and the, the Holy Trinity and these kind of complex ideas – of of what what is the nature of God, mm-hmm. you know, right? It's, it's it's built into it that that it's a mystery and you can't understand it, right? And then add into that too that you have you know these ancient religions or uh, I often use this analogy for for Hinduism. Like Hinduism is not this one product, right? It is this well of of time and culture, yeah, with all of these varying ideas and different interpretations of gods that are then uh, spun around and used in different ways. And you do see that in in Christian traditions as well. Hinduism is a world of belief. Yeah. And layer upon layer. It's like an archaeological dig. Yeah. But then, of course, that raises the question of modern religions, right? Yeah. And so I I would wonder if the MCI hypothesis is correct uh, as an explanation for the success of religious narratives, shouldn't it be that we see unusual religions emerging in a mostly literate world where things get written down a lot and those religions have more permission to be the donkey cabbages of religion? Right. Well, I mean it – if you can write it down, you can make it sacred, and you yeah. can say nobody touched this. Uh, and, and one of the one of the the, the points that uh, Upal makes uh, about this, he compares it to emergent religions, mm-hmm. uh, and how you have you have re- re- new religions that have emerged, and they generally have an uphill battle because they're they're having to, to go up against the established religions that have in you know in many cases centuries upon centuries, thousands of years of history, mm-hmm. all these sacred texts, and somebody saying. You don't alter this. This is the text, and right. uh, and this is the accepted interpretation of it. And if you tweak it in any way, well, that's heresy, and we will punish that. Uh, and but then he points out well, you end up with a with something like say the Church of Scientology mm. emerging, getting enough uh, power. And what what do they turn around and do? They kind of, they they make their own sacred text, and they say. You can't mess with this. You can't take these. Uh, don't be a squirrel and uh, turn these <laughs> concepts around and try and market them off into your own uh, heretical um, religion. Mm-hmm. Is squirrel part of their whole thing? I, I, I wasn't aware of squirrels. Yes. Uh, uh, Upal writes, quote, for instance, the founder of Scientology, um, Ron Hubbard, is reported to have uh, referred to those who modify his techniques as squirrels who should be <laughs> harassed uh, in any possible way. 
Weapons used to discourage any change in religious doctrine and practice include ridicule, expulsion, and harassment. Continuity in religious doctrine is explained to the extent that such thought control techniques are successful. Hmm. So it's kind of a – it feels like a struggle between the, uh, the the oral stories and the written stories, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the one that wants to live and change and the other that we're trying to artificially set in stone. Here's a question I have, and I think it is to some degree addressed by this literature, but I'm, I'm not sure if there is a settled answer on it. What is the stronger tendency, the, um, the counterintuitive element adding tendency or the subtraction tendency? Do stories over time tend to undergo more adding of donkey cabbages style elements or more subtraction of donkey cabbages style elements? Well, I think. I like the like Upal's argument that there's a there's a dynamism in place that yeah. you're going to have uh, you're going to have it come in waves. I mean, th- think of it this way, right? You have alien. It's just about a person, you know, a crew on a ship against one alien. Yeah, and then things get crazy. You get aliens, uh-huh. and you've got multiple aliens. You get new kinds of aliens, uh-huh. and it's a it's a it's a fiesta. But aliens, I would say, is minimally counterintuitive. I mean, you, it is a mostly mundane narrative oh, with like one thing, which is that there are these horrible monsters. But but there's a ratcheting up. Yeah. So think of it like one one alien is one MCI. Okay. And then multiple aliens. That's a bunch of MCIs. Huh. And then Alien Three comes around, or what? Alien Cubed. Sometimes it's <laughs> the display does. And that one, they're like, all right, let's boil it back down. Right. You know, just one MCI alien in play. And then four things get crazy again, and, and you, you see this back and forth, right? Um, but I, I feel like that's probably the tendency, right, is yeah. that you'll ratchet things up. More and more um, MCIs are added, and then it kind of goes in reverse, fewer and fewer, sort of getting back to the uh, – it becomes more relatable as it is, uh, it is, as it is uh, transferred from user to user. Yeah, this is all real interesting, but now I'm, I'm, I'm undercutting myself because I'm thinking about the difference – uh, of there being both kinds of narratives going way back. So if you go back 1,600 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, think about the difference between the basically emergent Catholic Christian story and compared to the narratives you find of Gnostic Christian texts at the same time. The Gnostic Christian texts are wonderful. They, they are worth reading and they're so interesting, but their cosmology narratives are, are – they're they're off the you know they're outlandish they're super counterintuitive they're barely tethered to any kind of understandable or mundane earthly story you got the pleroma and yaldabaoth uh, and it's just not it's not as earthly and tethered and relatable as most mythologies that you're used to it's a, yeah this is where you have like the right ideas like of the first creation and the secondary creation yeah, the, the the demiurge the different levels yeah. of creation the beings of light and all this stuff i mean it's not stuff that's easy to picture it doesn't work like a normal human story it's mm-hmm. very abstract and removed from from grounded reality it seems too counterintuitive to be successful but then again i guess historically it was not successful True, but maybe it was only – it could only be successful in a time in which this uh, – in, say, the Catholic narrative was just so widespread and so dominant mm-hmm. that it, it kind of took on the trappings of just physical laws of, the, of, of life. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it also happened within a broader Christian context. So many of the people who practice Gnostic Christianity would think of it as a sort of like an extra helping. It's like the secret add-on mythology that you take on in addition to your regular Catholic mythology. 
So in a sense, Catholicism was roller skates, uh-huh. and then uh, and then Gnostic, the, the Gnostic belief system was was roller blades. Uh, maybe I mean it'd be like roller skates with an extra rocket booster on it or something. <laughs> Well, Robert, this has been fun. I feel like this is a really compelling explanation for the dynamics of of narratives and memory in human culture. I, I, I don't think I'd fully tried to put all this together before. But once uh, – funny enough, it is very intuitive once you hear it. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It, it does it, – it makes you rethink everything from your uh, – you know, your favorite books and movies uh, to uh, major world religions, mm-hmm. uh, and and I do think it is it it is getting at the at some of the truth of what's going on, but maybe a minimal part of the truth. Ha, well, we shall see. There's always a lot of pizza pie left over. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, there you go. If you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is where you will find all the episodes, uh, including the various episodes we've done on uh, on religious and narrative topics over the years. Uh, and if you want to support the show, uh, really, as I've said before, rate and review us wherever you have the ability to do so. That helps us out immensely. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, uh, to let us know uh, where you listen to the show from, how you found out about it, or to suggest a topic for a future episode, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.